friends, I'm Ashish Darbari, founder and CEO of Axiomize. To our new listeners, welcome. To our old ones, welcome back. I'm superly excited today. I'm not sure if superly is even a word, and you can tell why I'm so excited very shortly, because I have a very exciting person in the house today. Uh, he's been doing tremendous work in the field of formal methods and machine learning, and his name is Pascal Hitzler. He's endowed Lloyd T. Smith Creativity in Engineering Chair, and he's a director of uh, Center for Artificial Intelligence and Data Science at Kansas State University. Welcome, Pascal. Thank you very much for coming today for our chat. Thanks a lot, Ashish. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. And uh, honestly, when you contacted me about this, I didn't know there is a podcast on formal verification and, and logic in computer science and so on. And uh, I'm completely excited that you're doing this. And, and of course, I've been listening now and I, I'm count me among the fans now. Thanks a lot. Oh, no, thanks. Pleasure. I mean, it's always nice to have people who are doing uh, exciting work in formal, but in the broader realm of formal methods, as opposed to just focusing on uh, verification, which guys like us do. So, Pascal, before we talk about all the fascinating stuff uh, you've been doing, uh, I would like our listeners to get inspired from you, and I would like you to share a bit on your journey, where were you born, how did you get into science and engineering, and how exactly you ended up doing data science. Sure. So, I'm originally from Germany and born in Germany, and uh, my, my journey... Uh, well, you could say started when in the last year of my high school year, I did a two week summer school run by university professors, mathematics professors. And uh, I got exposed to university mathematics for the first time during that time. And I kind of got hooked. Uh, as we know, university mathematics is really different from what you usually learn at school. And uh, it, it was probably coincidental. I, I'm sometimes wondering if it had been a two-week summer school on psychology, perhaps I would have studied psychology. I have no idea. Uh, but, but essentially, that got me into math. Uh, and I did uh, my master's at University of Tübingen in, in Germany. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, then did a year abroad in, in Ireland, in Cork, Ireland, during uh -huh. that time. And there I met uh, the person, Tony Sita, who uh, was to become my PhD supervisor later. Um, somehow I never really, really planned what I did, but I just took the opportunities as they, as they opened up. Um, Honestly, during the first few years of, of doing mathematics, I was really thinking about jumping ship and doing something else. Um, partly because I found it really hard mm -hmm. um, and only found out later that everybody, I mean, the best people doing math find it really hard. Um, but also because uh, some of the things started to feel a, a, just a bit too removed from my taste from, from real life. Uh, I love the, the game of mathematics, and of course, there's areas which are closer to to practice. But um, uh, but in any case, the, when I when I went to Tony's class, um, it was about logic programming of all things from mm -hmm. a mathematical perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a mathematician. He was he was coming from functional analysis and moving into uh, well computer science uh, because he found new interest there. And so um, when I did my finished my master in Tübingen, he had a, a place as a PhD student, and then I, I went to Cork um, to uh, well to to do topics on uh, let's say on the confluence of uh, 
set theoretic topology, which is a mathematical field, formal logic, artificial intelligence, and theoretical computer science. So, somewhere in between there. Um, and uh, of course, that's a little bit weird on the one hand. On the other hand, it was completely fascinating to do that. And the PhD was still in mathematics then. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, now, you asked, how did I come to data science? It was still a bit of a route. Uh, I, I took the opportunities as they came. Uh, after my PhD, I uh, had done some work which related me to a professor at TU Dresden, and it turned out he had a postdoc position at the Artificial Intelligence Institute. So that was my, my proper step into computer science. And uh, if, if I recall correctly, the day I interviewed for that uh, position, Ashish, was the day you defended your master yeah, thesis that's right. that's under right. the same professor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Way back in time, yeah. It seems a long way off, yeah, being what... Right, and, and uh, I, I believe that it was also the only time we actually met face to face, you and That's I. right. I, know, I knew at the time that you were coming to Dresden and Stefan had mentioned to me and uh, you know, I had PhD offers from Dresden as well at the time and I thought, okay, I'll stay back and as you probably know that I, my focus in my master's was on um, uh, neurosymbolic logic and uh, learning combining connectionist systems and machine learning. So we were all, you know, anticipating working together, but you know, as destiny, I left Dresden and I think, uh, I, did you stay back in Dresden uh, for a few years? Did you continue? As yeah, I, I was there for, for, I believe, three years or so. Oh, wow, okay. Um, and, and I I actually, so I was working under under Stefan Hildobler, so he was like, who, who uh, supervised your master thesis. Yeah. And I read your master thesis, of course. So, <laughs> yes, I remember you uh, were encouraging <laughs> me to publish the paper. I remember you were, you were hassling me for a year or so. I said, oh, put it in paper. It's worth a, worth a while. And I remember I never persuaded myself to write a paper on it. But no, that's awesome. So actually, you are a mathematician uh, by training. And it doesn't surprise me at all that the way you've moved on to, we call it AI or statistical learning or neural networks or whatever you want to call it. But I think your foundation in mathematics must have helped you a great deal to be able to transcend from one discipline to another with, with a lot of ease, right? Um, it's not otherwise easy for somebody who is on the deep end of uh, one particular speciality to just hop to another one. And I, I was looking up uh, your work recently and I thought, I remember talking to you about neurosymbolic stuff many years ago, but you've done so much stuff, so I want to actually cut the chase and want to actually um, ask you this question, what are the key technology challenges you're actually addressing with your research these days? So I know you're doing semantic web, you're doing neurosymbolic learning, you're doing knowledge representation and reasoning. So give us a glimpse of all of these different areas that you're looking at and how they overlap or, or probably not. Right, so, um, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, right, with what I know now, would I have would I have uh, started with mathematics? And to be honest, I, I don't know. I, I may have, I may not have. Um, it, is, it is rather interesting because yeah, the, the formal education you get there and the, the formal background, it enables you to do so, so many things. Um, but of course, at the same time, you're also missing some things. Mm -hmm. uh, like for example, if my, if my PhD students have programming issues, they're on their own, I can't help them, right? Because I just don't have the background. Uh, to really to really do that. Um, so in in the end, uh, you know, 
starting with logic then uh, on my or getting into logic uh, and getting into artificial intelligence from a theoretical computer science perspective um, allowed me to make a to make a transition step by step. Um, and then in my in my second postdoc position, which was kind of more an assistant professorship, really uh, just not by name, at Karlsruhe in Germany, I really got into into things that were more, I'd say, hardcore computer science in terms of topics. Mm -hmm. That was a, a very prominent semantic web group, about 50 people actually, with a wow. couple of postdocs like me who were actually running uh, most of the most of the everyday research. And, uh, and yes, the background still came in because uh, there were aspects which were rather theory driven, in particular formal logic driven there. Um, but it also allowed me to transition more into, into applied topics. And that is, a, that is a journey which, if you come from mathematics, takes some while. Mm -hmm. You just need to, need to go there. But you can because you, you have the background uh, then at that stage. Um, so <clears throat> the, the story uh, there, it, it, as I mentioned already, it's a semantic web group. So, so let me explain how that is, and then I can explain how, sure. how this relates to... Um, to formal logic and kind of how, how I made my way there. So semantic web is a little bit of a misnomer, uh, I think. Uh, it, it kind of says, okay, it's web, well, yeah, a little bit, but not really. So uh, before talking about this, let me start by talking briefly about data science and then I'll circle back sure, to that. Sure, sure. So, data science, most people, when they think data science, they think data analysis. So you get data and you you find something interesting in the data. Uh, that's kind of the thought, that's primarily what you do. You get lots of data and, and you find something interesting. Now, if you actually talk with data scientists or with, with companies uh, doing data analysis, um, it turns out that most of the time uh, which data analysts use for their work is actually not spent on analysis. Most of their time is actually used for finding data, which they know must be somewhere, but don't know where it is, uh, is spent on integrating different data sets because you can on only answer the questions if you manage to get them together. Uh, they're uh, spent on, on uh, recompiling or curating data to make it ready for a new use case for which it was not originally meant and so on. So data management tasks uh, related to data sharing, discovery, integration, reuse, they're really the major cost factor in this type of work. Um, and so, so for me, this is part of data science. Uh, data science is not only about data analysis. Data analysis makes you the nice pictures afterwards, but Oscar, most of the groundwork when, uh, is in, when, in data management. Sorry to just interrupt you. When was data science recognized as a formal discipline? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I just, don't know. I think it, it just kind of slowly started to become a thing uh, in the last 10, 15 years or so. Um, but it's, a, it, it's more a gradual movement. Um, I'll tell you, that. my nephew in India told me he's coming out of school and he said he wants to pursue a career in data science. And I asked him, what is data science? Because it's not something we've grown to, to recognize as a discipline, but it's, it's, it's quite clear to me what you're saying here is that it goes beyond the hunting of this data or that data, but it's about getting some semantical connection between different data points, right? 
right exactly that that's that's exactly it so and now you you mentioned the keyword already the semantic mm. keyword right the the, me, the meaning of data and uh and this is really what the semantic web field is about uh the semantic web field is about finding methods processes tools uh etc algorithms which which make this data management process easier and uh it, it talks about the whole life cycle so even from the question when we create data, how do we do that in such a way that all these tasks become easier down the line? Um, and then uh, also about kind of how can we make algorithms which help us do data integration in a meaningful way? And, and that's what the field is about, uh, which doesn't explain how logic comes into play here. But, but let, me, let me tell you that. So one of the key things when you want to do something with data is that you need to to understand what the data you have actually talks about. So for example, a very simple example, um, say there is data which says wind direction north, mm -hmm. right? Some weather data. Yeah. Then um, mm -hmm. kind of what, what does that mean? Does that mean wind from north or wind to north? And if you uh, look at different science fields, then there's different communities who actually have different standards there which essentially means if you don't have additional information, you have no clue. And it's just not in the data. Uh, so what you need in that case is you need metadata. You need data which explains the data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, that can be simple, starting with simple tags. But then this metadata uh, can also be made more complex because it's more explanatory then. So for example, uh, that, that Tweety is a bird, okay, that's one thing, but um, background, background data may tell you that birds are animals, for example. Um, and then that means you get a connection between these two different types of things, think of typed data, between those two different metadata classes, uh, which allow you, for example, to say, okay, so if I know Tweety is a bird, I know Tweety is also an animal. Um, and now, for those being logically inclined, you already see where I'm going, right? So, in the end, um, the idea having complex metadata, which is encoded using some type of formal logic, is what helps you disambiguate and explain the meaning of the data, which means um, uh, it, it, it helps you in the process of understanding what the data is about, it helps you in the process of integrating data. It gives you more powerful search paradigms for data as well, uh, because kind of you search for animals, you also get Tweety, although Tweety was actually tagged as a bird mm -hmm. and these kind of things. So this is where formal logic comes in here. So this has um, an overlap. Let me, uh, this has an overlap with, or I would say this is rooted in ontology and knowledge representation type frameworks, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, c completely. And I mean, you know, one of the funny things about computer science, as you know, is that computer science they, scientists tend to invent new names for old things every couple of years. Mm -hmm. So uh, right now, the you, you don't use the word ontology no, in some quarters. <laughs> um, the word you use is uh, you use the word knowledge graph and knowledge graph schema. Mm -hmm. uh, a knowledge graph schema is really an ontology, or if you kind of want to go back further, a knowledge graph schema, an ontology, is the knowledge base in the term of knowledge representation, which essentially means it's the set of logical formulas which give you relationships about the domain you're currently looking at. And the knowledge graph itself is essentially uh, the, the data 
which conforms to this schema. Mm -hmm. uh, and knowledge graph is a new term. Uh, th there's a lot of industry buzz around it right now. Uh, Google um, really coined the term when they uh, publish their knowledge graph. In the meantime, there's knowledge graphs in, in most major IT companies and others as well. Uh, but before that term actually was about the Semeni web community and part of was heavily researching on these types of formalisms to make data management easier. And uh, yeah, we have the connection to logic. So let me, let me make another example, if I may, Ashish, sure, sure. Uh, because I found that so nice. So I have, a, I have a very good friend and collaborator, Christoph Janowicz at University of Santa Barbara, uh, uh, UC Santa Barbara. And um, it was already, I don't know, almost 10 years ago or so. And he went out on the web and crawled all knowledge graph data he could find. That was before it was called knowledge graph data. It was called linked data back then. <laughs> and looking for geotagged data, having, you know, longitude and latitude. And um, when doing that, you know, he found some interesting things. Like he put it on a map and uh, it turned out that according to this data, um, the first moon landing was actually not on the moon, but on the Somali in the Somalian desert. And why is that? And, and I'm telling that story because it's a metadata story, right? Mm -hmm. um, there were coordinates, but there was no information that it's not geo-coordinates, but lunar coordinates. Right. So it ended up in the Somalian desert, right? So this is, this is what happens with data if, mm. you, if, you, if you don't have metadata, which actually explains what things are. So this is very interesting. You know why? Because you very clearly explained to me that metadata is the surrounding contextual bit of information that you need to be able to decipher, understand clearly what your main focal point was or the main data point was. Now, if you take this concept of having metadata and contextual reasoning in the way neural networks are working, um, they seem to be very statistical, at least most of the research in neural networks learning, even in the deep learning, is very much driven by um, train the network on a certain data and then let the network make accurate predictions. Uh, this concept of a context which is logical and can actually make relationships is not, strictly speaking, uh, within the scope of conventional machine learning, if I may say that. Uh, I mean, of course, there is inductive logic programming and other such machine learning, but that's not what uh, we understand as machine learning today. Most of the people understand this as neural networks. And your work is actually hinging on that as well as what you just explained, right? So tell us a little bit more on what you're doing there. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in a lot of things. And uh, uh, but while I'm mostly known for my for my work on Semedi Web and, and data management, um, there's a, a, a thread of work which which goes back before I started working on these topics and which connects me again to your master thesis and the position at, at Dresden and so on. Mm -hmm. And and that is the, uh, the the area where you try to get together um, what I just mentioned, namely logic uh, logic based knowledge representation and, and deductive reasoning. Mm -hmm. Uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, machine learning paradigms, and in particular, what is what is called deep learning these days. So, uh, artificial neural network based mm -hmm. uh, machine learning. Yeah. And um, let let me let me perhaps start by explaining why why I think it's interesting to look at that. And uh, 
uh, also why, why I thought it's interesting to look at that before it actually became a thing in the last few years, yeah. uh, because there, there's there's something some some movement happening right now in the in the deep learning community, uh, I believe. So uh, let's step just for a second to to knowledge representation again. So knowledge representation using formal logic to represent knowledge, not necessarily as as knowledge graphs. That you can use all types of logics there. And one of the key things about knowledge representation is that you can do deductive logical reasoning over it. And that's usually done using algorithms, which are very complicated, and but you can prove formally to be uh, correct. Um, so this, this is how you, how you usually deal with knowledge representation. Mm -hmm. Now, um, sorry, just lost my thread. Now, if you look at machine learning yeah. on the other side, and let's particularly look at, at, uh, at deep learning, then what happens there is that um, you don't use logic or anything other which a human can easily write down to right. represent your knowledge or information. Rather, you start with a relatively blank slate. You feed, in, you feed examples to your system, and the system adjusts a ton of internal parameters in such a way that in the end, the system is mostly good in solving your task. Uh, so this is a completely different, completely different type of thing. Now, um, why is it interesting to look at those two things together? Well, okay, th there's, a, there's a fundamental motivation, which I find completely intriguing, and namely that both of these things, which both belong to the general area of artificial intelligence, are abstractions uh, from, say, human thinking or human biology. Correct, I totally so knowledge agree. representation, yeah. formal logic, is a way of trying to make a mathematical calculus which captures some aspect of our human thinking and reasoning and cognition. Uh, artificial neural networks are abstractions, again, of uh, neurons and their connections, meaning of our brain and neural system and how yeah. it works. Yeah. Um, so since we humans, our brain, our thinking is able to do logical reasoning um, and uh, and do mathematics and symbolic manipulation and so on. You would think that these abstractions of artificial neural networks should be able to do it as well, because in the end, in our brain are the natural neural networks. So it's a fundamental question to say, well, can we get these two things together? Mm. And it's particularly interesting because it turns out that it's incredibly hard to get these two things together, although somehow our brains seem to manage that. I know, we, we don't actually know how we are doing induction and deduction every day. And I kind of look at the neural network-based learning as an example of induction, because it works by examples, isn't it? And the problem I see in the world these days is we are all doing a lot more induction than deduction, you know? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this happened, so therefore this has to happen. That logical reasoning is not happened, but we are saying um, just by way of anecdotes and examples, especially in the politics where it's in, the, in your neck of woods where you are, or in fact anywhere in the world for that matter. And I find this intriguing because I, I don't know what is your view on this, but I think as a science community, we still don't fully know how brains are able to process um, I remember in my time in my master's, I used to call this reflective and reflexive reasoning. Um, because this was the term, you know, the logical yeah. reasoning is reflective and being able to walk across the door without thinking too much is reflexive. Um, so, 
so, so, so this is a lot going on and there is a connection. But tell me um, what happens if you don't make those connections and why do you think we have to make these connections? Right. So, so uh, what I just what I just talked about was the kind of kind of fundamental academic question you know you can ask. But there's also uh, you know possible technological advantage of being able to combine those two things because it turns out that knowledge representation on the one hand and uh, artificial neural network learning on the other they're very complementary with respect to their strengths and weaknesses. And you would like to have something like a best of both worlds scenario. So um, just as, uh, as, as, as two things uh, here, which, which are probably most, uh, uh, most central here. Um, for, the, um, for the machine learning scenario, of course, you can, you can learn from examples. You feed examples and it learns itself. Now, there is a little bit of machine learning that can be done with logic-based representations, but it's far, far away from being as powerful and, and being able to achieve Correct. those kind of things. Um, but at the same time, this ability to learn from examples comes with a, with a, 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 a complete lack of transparency. Um, you cannot formally verify an artificial neural network. Well, the only thing you can do is yeah. you can test it yeah. and say with some statistical significance yeah. that, uh, well, okay, in 95% of the cases which we tested, it gave the correct answer, right? But you cannot look inside, like you can look inside a, 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 a logic-based knowledge base and start understanding what's written in there, find mistakes and so on, or biases right, yeah. for that, for that yeah. reason. Yeah. Another aspect has to do with um, the robustness of, of, uh, of artificial neural network machine learning. They can, it's not necessary that all the examples are uh, correct, which you feed to such a network to learn, as long as enough of them are correct. It can really deal well with noise in the learning process. And it can also deal with noise uh, during, during uh, well, the processing after training, so when it does the classification. Now, uh, uh, if, if anybody knows a little bit about logic knows that if you put some noise in the knowledge base and introduce a few errors, the whole thing often just completely breaks down. Yeah. Um, so, so you would like to have some more of that robustness. But on the other hand, what that gives us on the logic side is this precision and this, this again, verifiability of what it does, uh, which, which on the neural network side you cannot do. So I have a quick question for you. Then leave so, out technological to the question. How yeah. can, can you combine those yeah. two things in such a way that you get a best of both worlds scenario? So just one quick question I have is, as much as the logic, logic that at least guys like me do use in verification, which is uh, problem verification, very, very brittle, it's a, it's a Boolean logic foundation or, or other formalisms of it. But how about we leveraged fuzzy logic and we associated likelihood um, parameters to it. And is there a way, or do you have, uh, have, have you worked in this field where you've actually looked at how people may be combining fuzzy logic-based description formalisms with neural network-based learning? And could that be the bridge that may be uh, helpful in closing this gap between the two worlds? So, so to that concrete question, my honest answer is I don't know, but we need to look at that. Mm, um, I, of course, I, that I, is I, that is a that is a natural way of doing it. So one of the 
from a mathematician's perspective now again, uh, uh, one of the, the fundamental differences in terms of the mathematical structures is that logic is, it's, a, it's an on-off thing, so classical logic, right? It's, it's discrete in its very nature. Mm -hmm. While um, artificial neural network learning uh, really depends on, on, well, continuity of the function, even differentiability of functions right. and right. so on. So right. it's, it's, it's a sliding scale, it's not on-off. And uh, it seems natural to think that um, uh, allowing more truth values than zero and one uh, may be a way of getting there. And yeah, it may be, it may be. Um, so the, the counter argument, and it, you know, it's compelling from that perspective, right? Um, however, I'm not so sure if uh, it's so straightforward to do that. It, it's, it solves part of the thing because it talks about a sliding uh, scale for the truth values. Yeah. But if you think of what, what humans do, right, they have a sliding scale in the meaning of words. Yeah. Fuzzy logic cannot capture that. No, it's right? likelihood. Yeah. So kind of a classical way of thinking is that a, a word can have several meanings, like bank, you know, mm -hmm. kind of, I can think of two meanings for the word bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a, a linguist, a, a computational linguist I recently talked with said, no, 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 uh, a, a word has a different meaning in each different context it is put, right? <laughs> and, and that's how we humans deal with that. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, look at fuzzy logic, right? Um, but uh, I, I, I think it may be a bridge for some things, but the verdict is out there whether it's really the bridge to be, to yeah, be done yeah, to, the, to yeah. the world of the continuous machine. Yeah, I'm also uh, not machine. sure, yeah. I mean, I, mean I, I had done some work in fuzzy logic-based um, uh, analysis and reasoning in my bachelor's uh, projects a long way back, but yeah, I, I think it's quite interesting that um, there is so there is a big gap, or at least there was a big gap between connectionist or logic-based systems and machine learning-based systems. But where are we now in terms of how much do we know that we didn't know two decades ago? And what do you think we are going to gain in the next two decades? What's your understanding on that? So I, I think uh, it, it's probably still a little bit too early to say, what do we know? Um, what has happened is that uh, kind of before deep learning got into full swing, uh, the study of um, combinations uh, of, of the symbolic and, and the sub-symbolic, as some people call it. A keyword is neural symbolic integration or neural symbolic integration, how, however you write it, mm -hmm. uh, has been, that, that has been a kind of niche subject. Mm. Um, and there's also a, a, probably a good reason for that because it was just inc an incredibly hard thing to make progress, or, although, you know, uh, there isn't much controversy about the potential benefits once you make it to work. Mm. But deep learning has made so many... Um, advances that in the last few years, it's it started being worth it looking at that again mm -hmm. and looking at these connections. And I, I know for me, you know, in, in the beginning, when deep learning came up, I said, well, yeah, that's that's still just curve fitting, right? <laughs> just a little bit more computational yeah. power and yeah. a little bit more uh, sophisticated ways how you do the curve fit. That's still just curve fitting in a multidimensional space, right? Um, so, uh, and, and I was waiting um, in particular for kind of 
solve a problem which really seems discrete using deep learning, right? And, and then it becomes interesting for neural symbolic integration. And that happened when, um, when they started to, 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 uh, to get chess to superhuman level uh, using deep learning. I because see. chess is such a discrete game. Mm -hmm. uh, you move a piece, mm -hmm. you know, you move a pawn to one adjacent field, right? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, uh, suddenly the, the, the other person is winning, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so what has happened is that, uh, well, probably two things. On the one hand, there is there's some work, including my own, uh, some of my own, uh, which starts investigating this again. And there have been some results which would not have been achievable before deep learning. So, for example, one, one of the things we did was we looked at a very simple logic coming out of the Semendi web field uh, called resource description framework. It's, it's a web standard for knowledge graph representation. Very, very simple logic. Um, but you want to start with the simple ones. And uh, uh, one of my students, um, Monir Ebrahimi, uh, who's, who's really deep into deep learning, she, um, uh, she, she tried to, to do the logical reasoning over this logic uh, by setting up some deep learning system. And um, uh, <laughs> to be honest, I, I told her in the very beginning she shouldn't plan on building her PhD thesis on that because I know it's a really hard problem. Uh, but she really dug her teeth into it. And uh, I have to say, quite for my, for my surprise, she managed to adjust uh, a deep learning approach from natural language reasoning, so coming from, from linguists called, called memory networks, mm -hmm. uh, to RDF, and uh, managed to make a system uh, which, which has, depending on what you feed it, 80 90% correctness. Uh, in terms of of the of the responses, um, wow. and that that was that was quite a wow for me. Mm. Um, so the paper is an archive. An archive. We haven't we haven't uh, properly published it yet. I see. Um, and that would just simply not have been achievable before deep learning. Sounds very exciting. I would love to take a look. Um, I'll, I'll, that, I'll get a link from you. And for all the users and listeners who are. Uh, listening to us, if you are interested, please ping Pascal or ping me. I can I can uh, connect you. I think we should take a look. I mean, so what do you think in two decades where we will be? Um, I know it's you, you're not a clear what. <laughs> so, so, so given how how trends come and go in computer science, right? I would say that in ten years, deep learning will be a technology of the past, and we'll be looking at something completely different, mm. right? Because that's how these things happen. Uh, no, but but probably closer to to what you were driving at. Um, so from the deep learning community itself, uh, in in the last year or two or so, you you see more and more. Um, uh, voices and even papers, which start to indicate, I think, that we may be at the point where the low-hanging fruits may have been reaped, and things become more complicated. And and one of the things uh, that is happening in this uh, community is that people start talking about neural symbolic. Uh, a lot of that is still coming from uh, uh, mostly from the machine learning corner. And uh, uses symbolic still in a very shallow way, but at least, right, they're starting to use very simple metadata to improve deep learning systems. And from there, 
at least for me, it's a natural step to say, well, okay, if you can improve your systems using simple metadata, then, you know, going the step to more complicated metadata, meaning logic-based background knowledge, uh, is a natural step. And then you're in the middle of uh, how do you capture reasoning with, with uh, deep learning systems? Uh, and, and the question, how do you actually incorporate formal logical symbols? Um, we're still at the point where there's many, many more unknowns regarding this combination uh, than, uh, uh, than knowns. Um, and uh, per perhaps just as a, as a second aspect here, uh, because I think that's also relevant, another topic coming out of deep learning is that of explainability. Explainable artificial intelligence is a keyword. And that's about trying to address the problem that deep learning systems are just so obscure. You don't know what they do. You can't verify them. You don't know how to trust them. So people are trying to, to add algorithms or modify them such that you can explain why they come to their conclusions. And again, for me, and, and I know this is not a majority uh, perspective in the field, but for me, um, an explanation what a system does uh, really is, is an explanation which is more general and more abstract than at the level of the input data to the network. Mm -hmm. So if, if I want to know why did the Go system, the Go playing system for the game of Go, put, put it there on the board, I don't want a highlight of part of the board. I want a high level explanation like because it avoids a co-fight, for example, yeah. things like this. Yeah. And you can do this only by connecting it to background knowledge, meaning to logic-based knowledge bases, coming out of knowledge representation and knowledge graphs. And I think to make really advances on that, this is where it needs to go. Whether this is going to happen will depend on community trends and funding availability, as we always Yeah, I, I mean, I just wanted to say that in the field of uh, formal, formal verification, um, a lot of the mainstream media vendors have been uh, applying machine learning, uh, I believe the neural networks way, to make uh, regressions run faster when you are actually reloading the designs and verifying them again. And I think I can see that going forwards, um, they would feel uh, particularly inclined to combine these symbolic uh, aspects and logical aspects with this. But hey, you know what, time is running out. I think we're well past half an hour mark. But before I let you go, I want uh, you to please give uh, five tips for our young listeners who would like to pursue a career in data science and what would be your recommendation? So, uh, you know, I, I started out in mathematics, right? And this is where I ended up with. So, um, you know, talk about planning things ahead. I'm not quite sure I'm really the best person to give advice on that. Uh, so so let, me, let me do this from a little bit more orthogonal perspective and, and not do the standard boilerplate stuff. I, I think an awareness that trends come and go uh, is really helpful. And, and if you're young in your career and you're perhaps a beginning PhD student, you know, right now you see, oh, there's deep learning, right? Deep learning is the world because everybody's only talking about deep learning. That will change. We don't know how quickly, but it will change. Um, so so be, be aware of that, right? And, and kind of plan things such that you're flexible. Um, then if you want to do data science, be aware that most of your time you'll do data management. So don't neglect those skills. That would be, would be perhaps the other one. Then um, I don't think you know you can really do much without knowledge of application areas. 
And uh, so on the one hand, it's good to build that in some area you find interesting. But on the other hand, what is really indispensable is a skill to cross disciplinary barriers. Mm -hmm. And that's a skill that's not easy to get. Sure. Uh, that needs experience, uh, that needs just trying to do it because other people from other disciplines think so completely different than you do. Uh, so this is tricky. Um, so and that's probably number four, kind of get a broad education. Uh, kind of every book I read about non-computer science and math stuff is helpful in, in the work I do with application partners. That's really a nice and, tip, yeah. I think number five is missing. So as number five, what I think it's always good career advice to say, follow your intrinsic interests. In particular, if you're if you're looking to do something, you know, uh, where you really want to achieve something. If you don't, if you don't follow your intrinsic interests, you will run out of scheme. So yeah, yeah, fabulous. Uh, I totally agree with you. That's probably the most interest in, yeah. and most important. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I hear a lot of young people trying to um, start a new career in data science, and they try and get too specialized too soon and what you're saying here is that don't do that broaden your interests read a lot of different things and uh, follow your instincts which is all uh, you know for us lot who are losing hair you know it seems quite natural but you know it's always good to, to transfer the system but you know man thank you very much for your time um, and I really appreciate it and there's a lot of ground for us to cover and we will schedule another podcast sometime soon hopefully where we can do a more deep dive into some of these topics. Uh, I'll wait to find out from my listeners as to where they would like to go with this. Uh, so thank you again, Pascal, for your time. Um, so we'll, we'll hope to see you soon again. Thank you very much, Ashish. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So friends, I hope you liked today's podcast, um, and I hope you would enjoy our conversation based on the combination of uh, logic-based reasoning and machine learning based on neural networks. Uh, Pascal is one of those rare people in the world who has been uh, working in this field for a long time. And I hope you will find this uh, both informative and uh, you, will, you will reflect on it going forwards. Uh, so I hope to be back with you next week. Um, keep pinging us on info at axiomize.com and don't uh, forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And stay safe and don't party too hard. Thank you very much.